how many of you have, by a show of hands, catchphrases that you heard in your childhood that still you can recall and still stuck with you to this day? How many of you have those things where, yeah, lots of you, most of you, uh, me included, and my guess is that for many of you, uh, to your uh, horror, you are now repeating some of those same phrases that annoyed you that you heard when you were a child, right? And that, that scary place where you say, I sound just like my mother or just like my father has come down on some of you as well. And so some of those phrases may be familiar, money doesn't grow on trees. Uh, were you born in a barn? I love that one if you left the front door open. Uh, they don't make them like they used to. Uh, there's a phrase, if you grew up playing sports, uh, no pain, no gain. Uh, I still remember in peewee football, third grade football, uh, when our coach used to have us this chant, it was called Blood Makes the Grass Grow. Now, <laughs> I just want to acknowledge here before the Lord and everyone else, I never hit anyone hard enough as a third grader to make any blood come out of anybody, all right? But our coach would tell us that, you know, you're eight years old, you're like, yeah, all right? And so these phrases stick with us for a lot of our life. Let's see about this one. Let's see if you can actually fill in the blank on this one, all right? You yell it out. No guts, no... Yeah, absolutely. Well, that phrase, interestingly, uh, can be traced back to uh, 1955. There was a man uh, named Frederick Corman Blessy. And Blessy was a major in the U.S. Air Force. And uh, as you might guess, he was involved in uh, combat in Air Force. And so, uh, as a result of that, he wrote a manual on air-to-air combat. And the title of the manual was called No Guts, No Glory. And that manual is still used today in training combat pilots. That's the origin of of that phrase. Now, we're incredibly indebted to his courage and all those courage of those who have defended our freedom in combat. Uh, and the, so we are also uh, called as Christians to display courage or guts in living out our faith in a world that has moved away from a biblical worldview. But here's where we would give nuance to the phrase, no guts, no glory. For those of us who are following Jesus with our lives, our end game is to live in such a way that our lives are consistently pointing the glory away from us and onto the Father. And so while we may say, hey, no, or, no guts, uh, but all the glory goes to Him, that's where we'd be nuanced uh, in that phrase. Several years ago, I was listening to an interview with the uh, evangelist and pastor, Greg Lowry. And Greg Lowry told about the time uh, that he got to ride in the car with Billy Graham after one of his crusades. How awesome would that be? And he said, what I learned about Billy Graham was this. He said, it was literally impossible to pin a compliment on Billy Graham. He said, anytime he said, oh, Billy, I love the way you use that phrase. He said, Greg, the Lord gave that to me. He said, Billy, it was great how when you did this, he said, oh, Greg, he said, the Lord did that. He said, you could not pin a compliment on the guy. He said, every time, he said, uh, that I tried to give him some measure of glory that I thought was appropriate, he said, he quickly deflected the glory back onto the Father. And he said, it was all something God has done, not something that I did. The reason that's so hard to live that way is because uh, author Paul Tripp was right when he said this, we are all hardwired to be glory thieves. And so turn with me to John chapter 17 as we continue our series, Red Letter Prayers, where we go from looking at a prayer of agony last week in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, hey, if this cup of wrath can be borne by anyone else, I'm totally fine with that to uh, here in John 17, a prayer by Jesus that God would be glorified and that the disciples would have victory as they carried the message forward. So we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 5 and then verses 11 through 17 together. So let's pick it up in verse 1 through 5. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is speaking about the pre-incarnate trinity there. And then skip down to verse 11. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. And uh, he's talking about the betrayal there of Judas. And I don't know if you've taught this as well, but Judas in the Hebrew actually is translated Kyle. Write that down. <laughs> just a, just It's the Bible. I don't, I'm not apologizing for the Bible, right? I'm kidding. Verse 15, or verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now, if you read any commentary on John chapter 17, uh, most commentators have given this uh, prayer of Jesus uh, this title, Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. And one of the things we learn about Jesus from the book of Hebrews and also from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, is that Jesus is our great high priest. He's making intercession for us before the throne of God. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is just about to make the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Have you ever heard this phrase? If you ever want to uh, sit next to someone who's dying, they do not mince words. Dying people do not talk about the reds. They don't talk about the weather. They talk about things that are important. And so Jesus, being God in the flesh, knows that his departure, his death, his torture, his crucifixion is at hand. And this is insight into what's going on in his heart recorded in this prayer. So in this prayer, I want us to see two uh, clear truths that the affections of our heart should zero in on this morning. And the first one is simply this, don't waste your life. Upon first glance of these five verses, there's a temptation to cast them into the category that we say, oh, those are theologically rich verses, but they're practically uh, useless. Let me explain why I would say that. Jesus is talking about uh, his oneness with the Father. I can't relate to that. In verse 1, uh, Jesus is praying for his own glorification. Again, I cannot relate to that. Jesus is talking about the authority he's been given over all the flesh in verse 2. Listen, on most days, I'm reminded I don't even have authority over my dog, right? But yet Jesus is here praying about the authority God's given him, verse 2. So again, I cannot relate. Jesus speaks of his completed work for the Father in verse 4. And contrast that with the work that we're called to do in the Great Commission is still ongoing. So once again, I cannot relate to what he's praying for. He talks about eternal life being made uh, known through him and an experiential knowledge of him in verse 3. Again, I cannot relate. I've never changed the spiritual standing of any single person. So again, there's a temptation to look at these first five verses and go, wow, there is some rich theological truth there. The oneness of Jesus and the Father and the Trinity, the glorification of Jesus. There's some rich theological truth, but there's not a lot of practical help to live out of. But when you examine the text more carefully, 
What you see here that Jesus is praying for should be a model for the motive of the prayers and the life that we live here on earth. And so go back to verse 1 and start where his actual prayer starts in verse 1. And in verse 1, where his actual prayer starts, listen to what he prays for. Father, the hour has come. So again, this is a dying man. He's not mincing words here. He's not talking about trivial things. And what's he praying for? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that, so that there's a cause and effect here. God, I'm asking you to do this in prayer so that this could happen, okay? So he says, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You see what Jesus is praying here? He's saying, oh, God, if it be your will, if you would put some measure of glory on my life in this moment, then I'm going to be a good steward of that glory because what I'm going to do with whatever glory you bestow on me in this moment, all I'm going to do is to be a conduit to transfer that glory onto your life. Listen, Jesus was Billy Graham before Billy Graham was cool. Amen? You couldn't pin a compliment on the guy. And so he's praying and saying, Lord, if you would glorify me, I would take all of that glory that he did deserve, and I would transfer that and put that glory on you. Now, if we stopped right here, I'm assuming that everybody got up early today and possibly threatened your kids on the way here because you have a desire at some level in your life to glorify God. If you didn't, you just slept in today, right? But here's the problem. Knowing that our hearts are hardwired to be glory thieves and that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17, we can be deceived about even the motives of what we're doing in our spiritual efforts. We see that example in the Pharisees. There was not a lack of religious activity. There was not a lack of religious effort on their part, but their motive was not for the glory of the Father. Their motive was for the glory of themselves. They wanted everyone to look at them and go, wow, they've got it all together. They know God. They have access to God. And so it's all motivated by their glory. And so here's the question. How do we know when our activity is right, but our heart is wrong when it comes to glorifying God as opposed to living for our own glory, even in our spiritual efforts? If you're listening, say amen. A key indicator that we are, in fact, living for our own glory is that we are crushed when it does not come. When the accolades or the awards or the glory or the esteem or the compliments or whatever it is do not come and we're crushed by that, then guess what? That's a key indicator that, in fact, we weren't living for God's glory because if it was all about God, we wouldn't be crushed. We're living for our own glory, and we can do that in our spiritual efforts. Now, I would argue this morning that living for our own glory, living for our own likes and retweets and shares is a complete waste of life. And here's why. Because our glory will not last in eternity. All of that false glory will be swallowed up and by the all-consuming and overwhelming glory of God in heaven. And so if you really believe that to the point you're willing to live out of that truth, and you know what will happen? You'll reorient your life. And the prayer of Jesus in John 17 will be the prayer of your life and saying, Lord, whatever glory you choose to sovereignly bestow on my life, let me be a conduit for that, not a cul-de-sac, that I may distribute that glory back where it belongs at your feet. Now here's the reality. Most of the time, 
We think that looks like these big, huge spiritual assignments. But can I just tell you that the most common and consistent way you're going to glorify God is in the everyday, ordinary routines of the life that you're living. Is your motive in marriage the glory of God? Is your motive when you go to work the glory of God? Is your motive in raising your kids the glory of God? Is your motive in how you spend your time and your money the glory of God? That's what it looks like to pray and say, Lord, whatever stewardship you entrust me with, I'm just going to put that at your feet and reorient your life. And if you don't, then guess what? Because your glory will not last. Listen, if you don't do that, you will have wasted your life on something that will not last, namely your glory. But if you spend all of your life and all of your motives seeking to display the glory of God through your life, then guess what? You will not have wasted your life. You will have invested your life in something that lasts for eternity. So hear me this morning. Do not waste your life. Live for the glory of God. And you will not have wasted your life. Randy Alcorn is an incredible book on generosity titled The Treasure Principle gives an illustration. It's about giving, but I think it applies to anything with eternal value. In the book, he argues that for a Christian to hold on too tightly to any uh, earthly possessions and specifically money, when we know that it will have little value in eternity, is the equivalent of going back in time and storing up Confederate money despite knowing that it would soon have no value due to our knowledge of how the Civil War would turn out. Think about that. If someone invented a time machine, maybe one in the shape of a DeLorean, and they told you they were going back to the Civil War to collect all the Confederate money they could as a, an investment strategy, you would say, are you dumb, McFly, right? Guess what? When you're living your life for your own glory, that's exactly what you're doing. You're trying to accumulate and reorient your life to grab a hold of something and store up something and live motivated by something that will not last in eternity. Your glory will be consumed by the all-overcoming, powerful glory of God in all of eternity. So to live that way for your own glory and accolades and achievements and awards and all those things is to waste your life. But to live for the glory of God as your motive is to invest your life into something that will outlast it. And so Jesus is praying and saying, Lord, in this moment, I'm praying that you might glorify me, not so that I can hoard it up, but so I can lay it at your feet. And so, what does it look like? How did Jesus glorify God in this text, and how should we seek to glorify God in our lives? Look at verse 4. What's he saying? In verse 4, he said, I glorified you on earth. Jesus is fully man, and so he's describing his humanity, his time on earth. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me, uh, to do. And so here is Jesus on his last hour, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, perfect life. He's getting ready to provide the sins for the atonement for the world. And the only motive to push through the suffering that he knew was to come was the glory of the Father. Now don't gloss over that. Here's why. To live for someone else's glory is not only countercultural, it's counter to our own heart's desires. And to do so on this side of eternity is to miss out on accolades and esteem of your own glory. And it's hard to live that way. If you ask anybody on the staff, I never cry. Write that down. 
You ask anybody on staff, I do not enjoy public recognition. I don't enjoy being the center of attention. It's not because I'm so humble. It's because I'm an introvert. I'm not shy. I don't mind getting up and speaking in front of people. But by nature, I'm, I'm an introvert. But my heart, make no mistake, my heart is hardwired to be a glory thief. And there are no exemptions just because I'm a pastor. As a matter of fact, there's a greater temptation when doing the Lord's work to want to take credit when God chooses to display His glory through the church. And so the goal is not just to get busy and work hard, accomplishing the work he's given us to do, to use the language of verse 4. It's not enough to do the right work. It has to be done with the right motive or else you will abandon the work or resent the work when the glory from others does not come. Can I tell you a secret? There have been times in 21 years of ministry where sometimes people have been discouraging. Can you imagine that? Sometimes the only thing you ever hear from folks sometimes can be, you know, I think we should do this or that, or I don't like this or those kinds of things. And, and sometimes it's hard not to get resentful and bitter about that. Listen, there are sometimes the shepherd gets hungry for lamb chops, if you know what I mean, all right? <laughs> and do you know what that's an indicator of? That I'm living for my own glory. That I'm desiring to be esteemed or recognized or viewed as this great leader or great preacher or great pastor, fill in the blank, whatever it is. But listen, if the sole motive of your life is to live for the glory of God, then not only do you pass on the compliments to him, you're not willing to absorb the wrath of the criticism as well. Because you weren't in it for your glory at all in the first place. But it is hard to live that way. And if our motive in serving the Lord is not God's glory... You'll abandon the work at some point, or you'll resent the work when the glory does not come from other people. And so how do, what does this look like? Uh, what would we say this would look like? Well, there's two ways. One on the macro level, we would say this. What does it look like to serve the Lord, to be about the work he's given us to uh, accomplish there, as Jesus said in, in verse 4? One, it's to serve through the church. I'm going to let you know a little secret. Did you know this? That serving in the church, the motive should be the glory of God displayed through your obedience not guilt. Did you know that? And so, so many times <laughs> I've heard over the years someone say something like this Hey, I really don't want to do it, but if you don't have anyone else, I guess I will. That's the person I want teaching my kids' class. Amen? <laughs> I don't want to be here. I don't even like kids, right? And so the local church is the God-ordained means for accomplishing the Great Commission. And so one of the ways on a big picture that we give glory is to reorient our lives by investing in the local church. That's his plan A. But on a micro level, we've all got gifts and personalities that are not to lay dormant, but to be used for the glory of God. And so how has God wired you? What are your spiritual gifts? Let me make it as easy as I can. What is something you enjoy doing and how can you use that to point others to Jesus while doing that? And listen, if you live with that motive, if you live and reorient your life around that motive, then guess what? You will not have wasted your life on something that will not last, namely your glory, but you'll have invested your life for the glory of God. Let me just tell you this. If you do that, no matter how insignificant your accomplishments may seem, that in the economy of God, your life has been incredibly successful. 
Now, when you think about that fact that Jesus left us with this eternally significant assignment, that's daunting, isn't it? That's why when Jesus told the disciples, hey, I'm getting ready to leave, their response was, hey, that's a terrible idea. Right? And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. This is the plan of God for my life because it's daunting. And so the second truth revealed to us in verses 6 through 19 should be incredibly encouraging because we're reminded in those verses that we should be confident that we are fully resourced. To live a life for God's glory and to serve and to obey and to transfer that glory onto God and to carry on the work of the Great Commission through the local church. Here's the good news. While that is a daunting, serious spiritual task, God has fully resourced us for the work ahead of us. That's why we don't have to be crushed by the weight of the assignment because it's true with every other spiritual endeavor. Listen, Jesus is doing the heavy lifting. One of my all-time favorite quotes about ministry work, and we're all called to ministry if you're in Christ, comes from Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp said this, God does not call you to ministry because you are able. He calls you to ministry because He is able. He's the one who reorients the affections of our hearts on the inside. He's the one who guards us from the enemy on the outside. He's the one who sustains us by offering grace upon grace for the work and the hardships in front of us. Now, not just saving grace, but empowering grace. He's even the one interceding on our behalf before the Father. Think about that. How encouraging and comforting is it that the Jesus you pray to is in fact interceding on your behalf before the Father. Look at the second half of verse 11 down through verse 12. Verse 11 says, Holy Father, Jesus praying, keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's a reference to Judas. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so what Jesus is praying for uh, here is he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm departing to go with the Father, and the disciples are going to be left in the world, kind of left to themselves. Now he tells them later on, don't worry, I'm sending another, a comforter, uh, who will be with you. But what he's saying is, hey, I know that they're going to be hated for my name's sake. I know there's going to be opposition for my name's sake. And while Jesus was on earth, he could be with them and help them in tangible ways. That's what he says there in verse 12. I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. And what he's saying is, I'm leaving. My ascension, my departure is at hand. And so, Lord, the prayer of my heart is that just as I've kept them when I'm here, that, Lord, you would keep them and sustain them for the work that's coming on side of them. And the opposition that will come against them. And so he's praying that God will guard them and protect them. To a much lesser degree, we might liken that to dropping off your child the first day of preschool or college or, or to youth camp or something like that. Remember the anxiety you felt when you first dropped off your kids? Right? You're like, oh, are they ready? Have I done my part? Are they safe? Are they going to get a good teacher? They, and all that's kind of, Lord, protect them. And, you know, it's my baby and those kinds of things. And, then, you know, you're emotional. And then you get out in the parking lot and you're like, praise God for a little peace and quiet. Amen? And Jesus is like, hey, I'm, I'm sending these kids out. They've been with me. I have tangibly guarded them, protected them, instructed them, warned them, modeled them. But I'm leaving. And so, Lord... 
I'm praying that you would keep them and protect them. And I believe one of the most encouraging verses in the whole Bible is found in verse 9. Look at what it says. Jesus says in verse 9, I am praying for them. How incredible is that? That not only does Jesus call us to himself, not only does he call us to the eternal work of making disciples for the Father's glory, he says, but in the meantime, I'm going to be interceding on their behalf. And Jesus, the one we pray to, the God in the flesh, is interceding right now on behalf of us, our great high priest. And the prayer he prayed was for God to keep the apostles in your name and to sanctify them in their truth. So Jesus saying, hey, I know it's scary. I know there's a lot of weight in the mission to live for the glory of God and to make disciples in my name. But, but what's he praying for? He's praying for two things. One, preservation and sanctification. Let me break those things down. Number one, Jesus saying, hey, I'm praying that no one would fall away like Judas did, verse 12. And what he's saying is, hey, when you're involving yourself in kingdom work because of the temptation within and opposition without, there'll be a temptation at some point in that journey to give in to unbelief. Now, when I say that, most of you would say, well, I would, I would never become an apostate. I'm I've never become an atheist or an agnostic. Or, I'm not talking about unbelief with a capital U. I'm talking about unbelief with a lowercase u. Let me describe to you what unbelief looks like or rather sounds like in a lowercase u that you and I are going to be tempted in the work. And this is exactly uh, what it sounds like, unbelief. I know what the Bible says, but that right there is the battle of unbelief. I know what the Bible calls me to do or calls, how it calls me to be or how it calls me to govern this relationship or the kind of employer, husband, or you know, whatever the case is, or child or student, fill in the blank. I know what the Bible says, but when I think about this, if I do that, it's going to turn out like this. And I don't know how that's for God's glory and my good. So I'm going to, even though the Bible says this, I'm going to do this. Listen, that's unbelief. Obeying the Bible when it does not make sense to you is the very definition of biblical faith. And so Jesus is praying, he's saying, hey, I know what's coming. If they hated me, they are going to hate you. They want to stomp out my life. They want to stomp out whatever influence you could have beyond my life. The Romans wanted no threats to their civic power. The Pharisees wanted no threats to their religious control. But the disciples still had the full assurance that Jesus is praying on behalf of them. And praise God, he is still our great high priest. Let me make this as plain as I can. To quote the late J. Vernon McGee, let me put the cookies down on the bottom shelf where the kids can get them. Every time that you wrestle with, I'm not good enough or strong enough to do the work God has called me to do, then meditate on the truth of verse 9, Jesus is interceding for me. Every single time you battle that insecurity, I'm never going to make a difference for God. I could never serve in that capacity. I could never keep going when life doesn't seem to be going well. Every single time that those doubts begin to assail you, listen, meditate on this fact. Jesus is interceding on my behalf 
right now. And it's His intercession, not our strength, that is the source of our preservation in ministry. You see, I'm just so weak. Listen, here's the good news of the gospel. When you're weak, He is strong. And when you can persevere because He's sustaining you and interceding for you, guess what that's an opportunity for in your weakness? To give glory to the Father. And to say, oh, listen, if it weren't for Jesus sustaining me and doing His work in me, I could not continue in this fill-in-the-blank. All the glory goes to Him. Your hardships are not a setback. They're an opportunity to glorify the Father with your life. And the strength to go on is not your willpower, your emotional resolve. Listen, it's the fact that Jesus is interceding on your behalf. And secondly... What else does he offer us? He offers us his intercession to keep us going and the work is hard. And secondly, what else does he offer us to equip us for the journey? Look at verses 17 through verse 19. What's he, what's he praying? In verse 17, he's praying and says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate or set myself apart that they may also be sanctified in truth. And so he's saying, hey, not only can you be sustained in the work because I'm interceding for you, verse 9, but here's the good news, that while you're doing the work, despite the hardships, that the Word of God will transform you and help you become like me while you're actually doing the work. So, so get your head around this and your hands on this. In the work of living for the glory of God and making disciples, here's the two promises Jesus offered that he's equipped you for the journey. Number one, he is interceding on your behalf. And number two, while you're doing the work, He is using the Word of God to sanctify you, to even help you become more like Him when you're working for Him. Praise God, what else do you need? He sustains us in the work and He helps us become like Him while doing the work. Listen, I'm not totally convinced that you're as encouraged by that as I am. And so on the count of three, would you just let out a hootie-hoo for Jesus? It's Kyle's last Sunday, all right? Would you just indulge him? One, two, three. Woo-hoo! Right? Did I hear a tambourine? <laughs> I guess you should rattle a tambourine if someone speaks in tongues from the pulpit. I guess that's appropriate. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I know it's hard to live for someone else's glory. I know there's going to be opposition both from the temptation of your own heart to be a glory thief and the enemy opposing you on the outside. But be encouraged. I'm interceding for you. Verse 9, and you can become more like me even in the midst of the work. Verses 17 through 19. Now, once you listen, we're, we're almost done. How do we know that we're becoming more like Jesus while engaging in the work? How do we know? that we're availing ourselves to all these resources he offers us in himself. Well, here's the good news. The text is, uh, gives us the answer. The answer is always in the text, by the way. And the text gives us one thing to look for. So clearly this is by no means an exhaustive list, but it certainly is an insightful one. So what should I be looking for in my life to know that while I'm engaging myself in the work of the Lord and fulfilling the Great Commission, that I'm in fact becoming more like Jesus and not just doing the work. What am I looking for? Here it is, really simply, one word, joy. Part of Jesus' prayer in verse 13, look at it, what's he say? 
He's saying that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now listen, experiencing joy while living for someone else's glory in the face of temptation from within and opposition from without is evidence that Christ is at work supernaturally producing in you what would not come to you naturally. Living for someone else's glory. You know what the world says? There's no joy in that. Listen, that's the whole platform of social media. Build yourself a brand. Build yourself a platform. Gain yourself a following. Get yourself some likes or some tweets or some shares or the cases. Why? So that you might receive more glory. And do you know why that's not working? you know why the depression and anxiety is at an all-time high for those engaged in social media? Because you cannot withstand the weight of glory. It was never intended for your life, but instead that your life would use it to display the glory of God. And when you go outside of God's good design for anything, brokenness is the result. And so why is this happening? All this anxiety and depression, all these things to... You know, social media, all this kind of stuff, because that's not God's good design. God's design is that our lives would reflect His glory, not leverage it for our own. And so, how do we know that we, in fact, are living for His glory and not ours when everything in us is glory thieves and around us in culture? Because there's joy in your life, there's joy in deflecting the glory away from yourself. And so here's the question I would ask you this morning. You're a church, so I'm assuming that you're interested in the work that Christ has called us to. And so here's the question I would ask you. In the midst of your disciple-making life and being at church and being involved in those things, here's the question I would ask you. Would people describe you as a person of joy? Or does your mood rise and fall with the changing tides of your emotions and circumstances? Is your joy dependent on whether or not you're receiving some measure of glory from others? And if the answer is yes, it is, then here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus can produce in you what does not come naturally to you. You see, Jesus is not just saving us from hell. Jesus is saving us in the meantime from ourselves, reorienting the affections of our hearts. One of the things pastors talk about often is living with a an eternal perspective. And if I'm honest, we probably don't talk about it enough because it's incredibly hard not to be weighed down with all the expectations and responsibilities both real and perceived on this side of eternity. You know the number one question I, or answer I get when I ask people, how are you doing? You know the number one answer I get from people? I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm assuming some of you are tired right now. That's why you're sleeping, praise God. tired. The reason that we're tired is because we're carrying a weight of responsibility that was never designed for us to carry. The reason that we're tired sometimes, not all the time, sometimes is that we're leveraging our life for our own glory and it never comes. So let me encourage you with this truth. If you will take this serious and leverage your life for eternity, you will not be disappointed when you get there. 
No one will look around in heaven and think, I wish I would have lived for my own glory. Everyone will get there and say, I wish I would have leveraged more of my life for His glory in this very moment. This fallen world is designed to disappoint you. How's that for encouragement? Brad Osteen in the pulpit this morning. With better hair. Amen. I just want to put that out there. But my counsel is not meant to discourage you. It's meant as an encouragement to use that truth to stir your affections and reorient your planning for heaven, which will not disappoint. No one will regret living for God's glory once they arrive at the eternal address that glory dwells. And the goal is between now and then to live a life that proves you really believe that's true. And here's the good news of the gospel. With Christ's help, you can. You can. Would you bow your heads this morning? your head bowed this morning in light of what we've taught and what we've encountered in the text, I just want to ask you one question. What's the level of joy that you've been living with? And yes, sin should disappoint and discourage us. And yes, there's a real world with real responsibilities that are hard, and we live in a fallen world. I'm not minimizing any of that. But if the pattern of our life is the absence of joy, or if the pattern of our life is our joy is dependent on our circumstances or our moods or how much glory we're getting, then that might be an indicator this morning that in fact... Your motive has been some measure of glory for yourself and not glory for the Father. And sometimes we're so disappointed because what we desired did not come when it's our own glory. So right now, would you just say, Lord, I need you to sustain me. Lord, I'm praying right now like David prayed, restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, help knowing you and serving you be the foundation of joy in my life. Not the glory from others, the approval of others, the accolades from others, the awards from others, but Lord, solely may I live for your glory. Because Lord, when I get to glory, I will not be disappointed. I will have invested my life and not wasted. And so would you pray right now? Would you pray and say, Lord, in the everyday, ordinary life that I'm living, bring to mind this week that every encounter, every circumstance, every relationship is nothing more and nothing less than an opportunity to glorify you. 
God, help me to do what my heart doesn't want to do, to live for your glory. God, we pray this with great confidence, great encouragement, knowing that Jesus is praying for us, interceding for us, and confident that Christ in us is enough. It's enough to reorient the affections of our hearts where we might actually live for someone else's glory. It's enough to satisfy our hearts when the glory of others does not come. And so, Lord, we proclaim today by faith, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And so, God, thank you for the privilege of inviting us into your kingdom work. Thank you for helping us do it in such a way that it's for your glory and not ours. And God, thank you for interceding for us when the days are hard and the disappointments of life are real and heavy. And so, Lord, we pray again because we believe it by faith. Jesus is enough. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.